Hello and welcome to the Camera Channel Podcast. My name is Michael Sanders. This is part two of my conversation with Art Adams, and there's no real theme to this episode. It's not about any particular technology, it's just some of the stuff Art and I covered as we chatted away. But hopefully, you'll find it as interesting and as useful as I did. It's fascinating. I mean, the ways in which we get work, there is no simple rhyme or reason to it because everything is different, isn't it? Every every project is different. Every person is different. And of course, now there is so much competition. Everybody's coming out of film school and calling themselves a DP. And that's the biggest problem. Yeah, I was, I was really frustrated because, uh, you know, I, I think I'm a reasonably nice person, but I'm not... As a kid, I wasn't well socialized, so it took me a while to learn that skill. And there were people that I was competing with who just took off like rockets, not because they necessarily did great work or particularly creative, but because they did have that skill. And I realized at some point that that skill is so important. And at some point I just thought, oh, I should just go into accounting because I'm never going to figure this out. I did. I, I did eventually figure it out. but. I also just realized that, uh, you know, there were certain directors who got me and I, and it was not going to be every director. I just had to Mm. live with that. The directors who were very detail oriented and really wanted to get, you know, get specific shots in specific ways and at a specific speed, um, they really appreciated what I brought to the table, which is great. And then there were other directors who appreciated my planning didn't necessarily want to get that deep into it, but they appreciated the fact that I usually had something in my back pocket in case things didn't work out. You know, actually, this is a really interesting one. There was one director I worked with who commented over the course of the day, "Why you're really you're really easy to work with. You're not you're not super opinionated. Uh, you're willing to do whatever I want. This is this is really different for me." And I said, "Oh, cool." And I thought I'd work with him a lot and that was the only time I worked with that director because what I realized is he wanted someone with a lot of opinions because he didn't necessarily have a lot of opinions my he wasn't very sure of himself I I guess so he acted sure of himself but in the end what he wanted was a DP would say no that's that's terrible I'm not going to do that and my approach was what do you want to do I will make it happen and it turned out that was exactly the wrong thing so, but it's, it's just not, it's just not who I was. I'm not the kind of person who, who goes in and says, no, that's not, that's stupid. We're not going to do it that way. But some directors really respond to that. I was the type who would go in and say, what do you want to do? I will do my best to make that happen. And sometimes that was exactly the wrong approach. So I kept, I had to realize at some point that it wasn't all about me. You know, there was no magic bullet that would get me lots and lots and lots of work. I just had to be me. And then certain directors would respond to that and, that was the best I could hope for. And the reality is that so much of it is about luck. Oh, yes. And there's nothing you can do about it. One day you might meet the director that's going to, you're going to be the best friend and work with them for the rest of your life. Right. And that's, I think, you know, unfortunately, the social skills side of it tends to result in more luck, I think, because, you know, people, people remember that. And uh, I think the bigger network you have, the luckier you, you are. I yeah. relied more on the quality of the work and the style of work that I could bring. And I did fine, but I did see DPs who were just amazing uh, politically take off like 
absolute rockets. I'm running into a lot of DPs in Hollywood now, and I'm, I'm also seeing that there's a wide range over here. And, and the DPs that I, I interact with who do uh, you know, television sometimes aren't the best politically, but the work they do is really high quality and they can do it really fast. So there are scenarios where that, that combination works. Um, and maybe it works better in situations that are higher stress and someone can demonstrate that they can deliver under higher stress situations. And, you know, maybe they're a little more abrupt or coarse or, you know, to the point, but you know, when you've got 80 people standing around and you have, you know, 10 pages to shoot and it has to look really, really cool because the streaming network that you're shooting for wants that, um, Mm. maybe social skills are a little less important. Or maybe they're less important yeah. for long-term projects too. I mean, you, you have to be calm and cool on a, on a set, but I don't know how big your network has to be. Maybe people are relying on their agents more. I don't know. I just know that the stuff that I think you and I do, where you can have a different job every day, tends yeah. to be a little bit more political. <laughs> because it is that first impression counts so much. Mm. And... It is very easy to, for that first that first date to go wrong, isn't it? I, I think that's where the luck comes into play, because <laughs> <As> I I've <laughs> I've run into situations. What I discovered is that things are now so complex that you can't control everything. And being a DP who was more technical, you know, I, I tried to do all the technical homework in advance because when I got on set, I just wanted the light. That's all I cared about. And I wanted to frame cool shots. But if something went horribly wrong, I could I could usually figure it out quicker, faster than the crew. And I think that's also, you know, it's funny. My my mom had her knee replaced, and when she was in uh, rehab, she ran into a DP who shoots a lot of episodic television. And uh, you know, he had had his knee replaced because he had an accident on set, and uh, they got to talking. And my my mom said, "Oh yeah, my my son's a DP." And he says, "Oh, I am too." You know, that's a tough position because the DP has to be the smartest person on the set. And I thought, well, okay, what does that really mean? And I think what it means is that everyone else on the set has their niche, their their area of expertise. You know, the gaffer, lighting and power distribution, you know, getting the lights in the right places at the right time. Uh, the grip crew, you know, rigging, uh, moving the camera, they know all that really well. Um, camera assistant, you know, all the parts and pieces that have to go on and off depending on what I ask them to do. I don't have to know the details of how they're doing all that stuff, but if something goes wrong, I have to figure it all out. Uh, I'm the only one with the unifying view. And that's really a tricky position to be in because there is so much that can go wrong now. And sometimes other people Mm. don't understand the ins and outs. Like I had a DIT on a really big commercial and where, um, you know, the images weren't coming out the way I was expecting. And I had sent him a LUT, uh, and it was a LUT that over, basically overexposed the, the image by a stop because I was going to rate the camera slower for visual effects. And my meter and the camera weren't agreeing. And I've seen that before, so I wasn't too worried about it, but it, it kind of bugged me. And at some point, I walked over to him and I said, you're using the LUT I sent you, aren't you? And he said, oh, no, I'm just slapping a, a default 709 LUT on there. It, it, it works fine for everything. 
Well, it meant everything I'd been shooting for the first three hours was a stop off from where I had expected it to be noise-wise. Mm. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that used to drive me nuts. Or they, the agency would come out of their their little hidey hole and come over to the set and they'd say, oh, your monitor looks way better than mine. What? Mm. <laughs> to go back and, oh, yeah. nobody set up their monitor. Um, there's yeah. all these different ways that you can get screwed over now and i used to learn something new on every single job no matter how careful i was there's a you know maybe i go to 48 frames on a shot there's a bulb in the background in a table lamp and it's a halogen bulb and it's flickering like crazy why is that well there's all these new you know uh, high efficiency bulbs out there and i think the filaments are thinner so when you go off speeds they start flickering faster because the old bulbs with a thicker filament would take a while to cool down so you wouldn't see as much of a flicker. Well, the first time that happened, that was a revelation. One more thing to screw me. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there, there's so much now. You have to be really, 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 really careful. And I think, you know, especially if you go out on a first job like that and something like that happens, how do you recover? <laughs> But at least now we have the tools to look at these things and see them on set. If you know how to read a rainfall monitor, if you know how to read false color, have a monitor that you know looks right. And you can be fairly confident of what things are going to look like when you get home. Yes. So that was an issue for a while, though, uh, because when we first started transitioning to LCD monitors away from CRTs, nobody made a really good LCD monitor. Um, I think now it's a lot easier, but then the monitor can also become a crutch. Uh, for example, uh, there's, I think it's the Sony A170 OLED that just became my, my light meter for a long time because they were so good. And I would always get one of those on set and then I could really trust what I was doing. But if I was traveling around, uh, I would end up working in remote locations with equipment from rental houses where they had really strange monitors, old monitors, cheap monitors. And then, you know, if you, you discover, like, if you're looking at a monitor from a certain angle and you're lighting to it, and then you get down and get level with it, and you realize, oh, the off-axis viewing angle on this monitor is really terrible. <laughs> and I've been lighting an image that uh, is actually a lot darker than I was expecting. Um, yeah. So there, there's a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to be discouraging to anyone who's listening to this, but there are so many things to be aware of. And I think a really skilled cinematographer still has a lot to learn. It's not as simple as looking at a monitor and saying, I know what I'm getting, because then you have issues of what is the, what is the codec doing to the footage? Uh, what's color subsampling doing to the image? You know, if I see more on a monitor, is that because the more is actually there or because I'm seeing a UHD image where the, the photo sites are being binned four at a time just to create an HD output fast enough because the camera can't process the image fast enough and that results in more moray. So is that really there or not? You know, do I need to stop everything and look at a raw file and make sure that it's okay? Or can I just go? And this is yeah. all the stuff that you pick up over time. And unfortunately you pick it up by, you know, not catching it and then getting a, an unfortunate call from post. But I don't, I don't know another way to do it, unfortunately. There's, there's so much out there that there, you have to know now. And I think a classic example of that, actually interestingly, is the 
the Arri Alexa and the surround view. And wow. I know a lot of people got burnt with that. And I must admit, that was a, ter- a bit of a turning point for me. I luckily didn't because I, the first time I used an Alexa, I had an assistant who had used one, so knew about it and was able to tell me what all the menu settings did. But it was after that that I thought, actually, from now on, I'm going to make a point of reading the menu. <laughs> something I hadn't done a lot. And I thought, actually, from now on, I'm going to look. And I want to know because it, all it takes is for a menu setting to be wrong. Mm. And I'm screwed. Every time I can, I'm going to make sure that I'm the one that sets the camera up. Ah, because yes. then I know. I mean, okay, I, most of the time I'm using my own camera, so it's different. What I would do is I would go to the rental house and I would say, how have people screwed themselves? A lot of the manuals are really terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, but and, and also, you know, there's there's uh, there's this difference of terminology as well. There's one camera where, if you want to shoot UHD, they actually call it um, uh, 4K HD. So I would send right. the specs to my assistant and say, set it up for 4K HD, and then you know, a couple shots in, I'd, I'd notice the camera is set to 4K. It's like. Okay, that's not what I asked for. <laughs> well, you said 4K. No, I said 4K HD. And uh, I actually asked uh, the rental house, and they said, uh, what a lot of DPs are doing now is they're just they're, they're specifying the exact pixel dimensions because then it forces the assistant to look at the, at the manual and figure out what setting it is. It's like, okay, all right, that, yeah. that, that's brilliant. Um, but, but yeah, the, yeah sometimes yeah. the terminology, the terminology differs between cameras to the point where you think you're doing one thing and there's something else happening. It's interesting. You know, if you learn one camera, especially a camera that has all the crazy settings in it, like, a like an F55 or an F5, because they leave all the engineering menus in there from the broadcast days, which in film, yeah, yeah we don't, we don't want to know anything about, but apparently in sitcoms, they're still doing a lot of color matching and they only get maybe an hour of color correction time for uh, a half hour show. So there's still someone in there tweaking all the settings and everything like that. But if you can learn what those do, you can get a good idea of what every camera is doing. Some cameras just, you know, hide that from you. And I prefer that like uh, in Sony cameras, like, like Cine EI mode, Airy cameras, all that stuff's hidden then you can just go out and shoot because otherwise you can really get into the weeds. But those settings do actually help you understand what's going on under the hood. And I think once you understand that, you can you can carry that knowledge from one camera to another. Yeah, it's quite scary just how easy it is to screw it up, though, isn't it? That's what I find completely um, worrying is that has the assistant done something just to make their lives easier, but they haven't realized that that actually ripples down and causes me a a big upset or whatever. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's terrifying. Sometimes people try to help you out, but they're 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 helping out by doing something that they think they understand, but they don't really understand what the ramifications are. Yeah, that goes back to that whole thing where you know that the DP really needs to understand it all. You know, I think on big projects, it's not that big a deal because there's there are a lot of DPs who shoot big features. They don't know much about how the camera works. They rely on the DIT, and their strengths are getting the camera in the right place at the right time with the right lens and lighting, you know, lighting an amazing shot, you know, really quickly. Um, but they don't have any idea what the camera is doing. <laughs> and I, I think if you're on a big project, you can do that. 
Uh, and you have to do that because I think in those situations, the DP is more of a, a manager of resources in order to get what they want out of the crew. You know, it's a, it's a big ship. Mm-hmm. I actually asked a big time feature gaffer one time what made for a really successful big time feature DP. And he just said, it's all, it's all planning. It's all pre, all pre-production. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're figuring it out mm-hmm. when you get there, you've, you've lost. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's, that's a big part of that equation because if you communicate to all those different departments exactly what you need and then you just let them do that and they're all competent and they can all figure it out then great but on smaller projects it's not that easy you really have to be dialed in because you do have to have that big that overview of how all the pieces are interacting at any any given time because there is no pre-production or you have a you you go out on a location scout maybe your gaffer's there maybe your key grip's there you don't have a DIT, your camera assistant's going to set up the camera exactly the way you tell them. It's considerably more difficult. Well, and also you get a lot less time. I, I used to love low-end corporate jobs because I could experiment. And if I screwed up, no one would notice, so, <laughs> which, which was really freeing. I got to try all sorts of crazy stuff. And um, I think there's a, an adrenaline rush that comes from that. I, you know, it's interesting. I used to like the jobs that came up last minute with limited resources, sometimes more than the bigger jobs. Because the bigger jobs, you really have to get everything dialed in in advance. And that's where you need a lot of communication. You need people giving you information. Uh, you need the crew to be on the same page. I would spend tons of time writing up notes and lighting diagrams and everything. So basically when we walked onto the, sh- the set within an hour, everything was loaded in, we lighting set up and, and things were going really, really smoothly because we had to get very specific things in a very set amount of time. But when you go into a project and it's last minute and it's like, and you've got a couple of lights and a camera and three lenses. Mm. <laughs> It's sometimes more freeing because then it's just a matter of I'm going to get whatever I can get that looks cool. And that's when you can really experiment because you can say, yeah, I mean, we can't light this entire interior and do a good job, but I can go and get this shot and it will be amazing. And I think that's that's something that uh, if you can find a director who's on board with that, it's really empowering because then you can go in with very few resources and create something that's stunning. As long as you kind of scale your resources to your taste level and acknowledge that you can't do everything, but you can do some things amazingly well. There's a freedom in that. But that comes back to what we talk about, about experience, because only once you've got the experience of knowing what you can do, can you, can you then go, Actually, no, I can't do that, but I know I can do this. I think a certain amount of this you can learn from just watching movies and TV and commercials. There is a famous sitcom cinematographer who used to talk about how they always started with lighting the background first. And when I asked why, they said, well, it's because you always have a background <laughs> and it's the, the largest thing on any set that you have to deal with. If you know where a person is, you can light where the person is. That's that's not hard. Mm. But if you have, you know, 270 degrees of walls, you have to figure out what to do with mm. that because you've got four cameras and they're all going to be staring at this person at any given time and there always has to be something behind that person. And that really yeah. got me thinking differently. And then I started noticing that there were some really interesting uh, moody situations in features and TV where sometimes 
they would light the background and not light the person. And that was what got me started thinking about uh, how, for example, rather than thinking of shadows as uh, an absence of information, you could start thinking of them as, as using black as a color to paint with. And this is something I tried to do in my commercial work, and I was really very successful. But there are some amazing high-end commercials out there where they're incredibly moody, and you can you can see the person as a silhouette against other things. And the the images were so rich because you had highlights and deep blacks and a lot of, a range of tonalities between them. And, and uh, you know there were a lot of DPs like uh, Harris Savides comes to mind where he used to really play a lot with that, and his work is just absolutely stunning and just wonderful. And I would get into arguments with creatives because I would light something in that similar style and they'd say, well, I can't see into that shadow or I can't see that person's face. It's like, well, but they're just walking across the frame. We just saw who they were in the preceding shot. We're going to see them in close up in the next shot and they're going to walk into a pool of light. Why do you need to see them here? And actually I got into an argument with one director. We were going through a, uh, uh, he had me go through a shot frame by frame on playback and he stopped and he said, that person's walking behind a post. The post is casting a shadow across their face. I can't see their face. Fill that in. I said, this is, you're looking at a half second from a shot where they're walking across a room. And if I fill that in, the shot becomes much less interesting. He says, I can't see their face in this frame. Fill it in. Okay. <laughs> so I was constantly trying to teach us art appreciation where um, maybe it's, there's a different way of thinking of shadows as, as painting with a color as opposed to an absence of information because people panic about an absence of information. But black mm. can make an image just really compelling. Anyone who's watched The Third Man yes. knows that. It's getting people to have the guts to go, let's experiment and just... Yes, well, I, I had a lot of those discussions because people would, in pre-production, we'd talk about, uh, you know, this is really, a, it's a corporate piece, but, you know, we have some money, we want to really kick the taste level up how can we do that and i would send them images from movies like the third man or, or commercials that i really liked and they, yes absolutely let's do that and then we'd get there and they would be suddenly drop into this very literal mode of i can't see everything but okay but in yeah. those images i sent you you couldn't see everything but you knew what was going on yeah now i don't like that so much so it, yeah. it, it it's uh you know that's the other thing you have to deal with with directors is you know trying to figure out what kind of mindset you're dealing with you know how abstract yeah are they willing to be and and in what way are they willing to be abstract because sometimes their storytelling can be yeah. very abstract but visually they're not as sophisticated and you have to understand that but yeah for me learning all those little tricks like sometimes the background is the easiest thing to light okay let's turn on a couple of practicals not worry about everything else and then have the person work their way through the space because you can see them against the lit back wall and the fastest way to create interest is to let that back wall be lit in pools of soft light and let the person just go black and that can be really compelling and it's fast if you have to start lighting the person and they're going through a big range of motions then suddenly you run into the situation where Okay, I have to now create pools of light. That can be really time-consuming. I can create a big wash of light. Well, that destroys the mood. I think you just have to become aware of all the different tricks other DPs are using to create looks. Mm. And also be aware that sometimes mm. when you talk to a DP and you say, that was a really amazing scene. How did you light that? Now, what was the impetus behind that? Well, I had a half hour left to shoot. 
And uh, we had to get this in the can because we were losing the actors, and that was just the fastest way to do it. And some, sometimes it's that simple, yeah. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention quite often, isn't it? It, it really is about, you know, it's 90% political and managing people and creating the appearance of doing something that, that comforts people. I do remember uh, William Fraker speaking and talking about what he used to love doing was was finding the place to put the first light on a set. Oh, that's easy. It's where the sound course puts their boom. <laughs> when, when I was a second camera assistant, it was always where I was standing. <laughs> I used to joke, I learned the light. Was, the gaffer would come over and say, I'm going to put a light right there. Oh, okay. Um, but that, that was always a really interesting uh, thought. You know, his, his lighting process was about finding that, that, that the spot for that first light and turning it on and then just seeing what happened by eye. And then that will kind of inform everything else he did. I think everyone comes up with their own strategy, but I, I think that's a really interesting strategy for uh, you know uh, managing a set. That's what's interesting for me is learning those tricks and learning what I can do and how I can take them and use them in my work. Yes, exactly. And I, I and sometimes you learn out of out of necessity. Um, I used to shoot a lot for a uh, healthcare company in very small exam rooms. And I was always trying to figure out interesting ways to make that work. And in one situation, the best I could do was, you know, put a, a four by four bounce card in the corner next to where the camera was, hit it with a light. And I thought, oh, this is going to be boring and flat. It actually was really interesting. And what I realized is that sometimes if you're putting a big soft source behind the camera is fine because there's a different quality to it. Now you're getting specular hits or specular highlights in skin, in metal objects. You're creating subtle shadows. It's not always a terrible thing. And I found that in white rooms, I could do things like I could put up two bounce cards side by side, light one with orange light, like one, light one with cool light, and maybe put them at slightly different levels. And when people walked around the room, you would have these two kind of offset shadows of slightly different colors. That's what happens when light comes in through a window. Uh, I, I first noticed mm. this in a hallway in a house I used to live in where I was, I looked down the hallway and the bottom of the hallway was lit with blue light and the top of the hallway was lit with warm light. So I went and I stood in the doorway. I looked where the light was coming from and it was, there was a two foot square window in a, a door looking outside and up at head height, I was looking into a sunlit wooden fence. And then down at floor level, you know, if I moved my head down there, I was looking up into the sky. So that's what was happening uh, is the, the window became an aperture that was mm. passing blue light towards the bottom of the hallway. And then as it transitioned upwards, and you know, if you moved your head along that path, you'd start seeing more of the warm fence and it would uh, transition into warm light. And so in, in interiors where I was just faced with white walls in every direction, I would try to do something like that because it kind of created that feel. And people see this stuff. They don't really understand what's happening, but you've kind of created this imperfect lighting situation that's much more interesting than anything else you could do. And it feels right. Uh, I used to do things with bounce cards or, or large bounce horses where I had block bits of them out to try to create irregular shapes so that it, it was less 12 foot square source that it actually felt like it was more a uh, collection of two foot square shapes. Because then the, the shadows were more complex. 
So in a, in a situation where you just had the light broadly and the, the background was bright or you just looked really awful, you could create these interesting shadows. So I think when you do pay attention to situations like I'm sitting in my kitchen office right now and looking at how the light drops off as I'm looking towards my refrigerator and how the, the, the coffee pot is actually really interestingly lit and the light in the foreground is very soft or the background is still very dark and I'm, it's all being lit by a window, that window light that's just, it's right behind me. So it's front lit. It's actually really interesting. And then in the background, we've got a light turned on in the dining room, which is actually quite dark. So it's giving a, a warm highlight across the curtains. Hmm. You know, if you really pay attention to this <laughs> stuff, you can bail yourself out of a situation where, you know, this will come up and the director wants to shoot everything at yep. once. And, oh, well, okay. I can light the back, the yep. foreground really bright. But if I do it in this with a really soft source, I can create some interesting shadows and, it, and really soft specular highlights and skin and metal objects. And then just let the background drop off, and it'll be interesting. But that's it. It's, it's keeping your eyes open, isn't it? It's constantly looking around you and trying to understand the ways in which light interacts with other objects, with other things, with other surfaces, and just trying to find ways of trying to memorize those different facets so that when the time comes, you can pull it out and go, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Yeah. When you get something that really just just works it's it is amazing feeling yes that those those moments where you you realize you've actually created something that is way beyond what you, you thought you could create uh then and, and actually those are the times that in some ways are the most frustrating for me because i i would sit there and think okay i have to very quickly figure out exactly why this works why why is my brain yeah. happy looking at this it's it's a great feeling, but it's also, and, and a lot of this stuff just kind of happens by accident. Uh, I remember I used to shoot a lot of people sitting around conference tables, and that was so hard to light because to to try to make that look interesting in a white room was always just death. But at, at one point, I realized, well, okay, so maybe I, I know light from below can look really interesting, and actually, light from below the lens or light bounced off the ground can, can bail you out of a lot of situations because I, that, that's another one of those tricks where I don't think people realize how much ambient light comes from below and how, how it can feel right in a lot of situations, even though, you know, you may not be aware of what it's doing. If you create that look, then suddenly you go, Oh yeah, this is the, the effect of sunlight streaming through a window and bouncing off a floor actually does wonders when I can't do anything else. So what I did was I just started putting a big open face light in the ceiling, aimed straight into the table, and I'd lay some papers around, like people had papers they were working from. And the bounce light off the table lit everyone in every direction. It was way more interesting than lighting from above. And in a white room, it, it created these shadows that would, uh, very soft shadows that would interact because you know that each different piece of paper in front of each different person would cast its own shadow. The shadows would run up the wall. They'd be very soft. There'd be a, a hard line below the surface of the table where the light wasn't reaching. So the you or not a hard line, but like a soft line. So the walls would actually be two tones, you know, above table level, and and uh, it would be brighter and darker below table level. And this one little trick actually saved my ass so many times. 
just going into a, a white room and okay, put a light right there. Bam, go. And uh, that was just born out of desperation and after trying absolutely everything else. I actually came up with a, uh, an interview lighting setup that was born out of desperation because I was always shooting talking head interviews because, you know, in kind of low end corporate world, you do tons of that stuff. And I used to have to set up really quickly. There were times one client would throw like 20 interviews a day at me. I mean, just, just crazy stuff. And I had to figure out a formula and I tried everything. And in the end, I figured out if I had two four foot by four foot bounce cards, one white, one black, put the white card to one side of the person, put the black card on the other side of the person, light the white card with a light that I hide behind the black card. So now I have a big soft source that I, probably about two feet away from, sorry about using Imperial. So <laughs> the US and our medieval measuring system, but, uh, but oh. two feet away, you know, uh, a four foot uh, card two feet away from someone creates really beautiful soft light. And then the black card would take down the ambience or there'd be a shadow and one light. I'd let the background do what the background was going to do. Maybe I put a light on the background. If I needed a, a little bit of fill, I would take a piece of typing paper and just tape it up to the black card so I could bring the level up to where I wanted and I'd shoot. So I needed basically, uh, I had usually like four C stands, four, four foot square black and white pieces of foam cord that I scored down the center. And then I separated them about half an inch and taped them back together. So they would fold because they would go through doorways on a cart easily that way. And then I had just a basic tungsten airy kit. Um, and I, I found that with that, I could, I could have two C stands with two cards blocking out windows. I would have two C stands with two bounce cards lighting the subject, light into the, uh, the bounce card lighting the subject, something raking across the background or bouncing off the floor, done. Very quick, uh, very easy to move around. Mm. But it took me about two years to figure that out. And I, I was putting lights below the lens and I was using chimeras of different sizes and doing this and that. And it, it, took, a, it took a long time to figure out how to light that simply. There, there became a point as a DP where no one could scare me anymore. They, they would come up to me with crazy requests or they'd say, hey, instead of shooting this way, can we shoot down that street instead? And it's like, okay, well, this is, this is now a challenge. And ultimately, I, I realized that it wasn't necessarily something I should stress over because ultimately it's not my responsibility. It's my responsibility to try to make it happen, but it's not my responsibility to panic and worry about what's going to happen to perhaps my reputation if I can't make it happen. You know, that, that's, that's not my, I, I can't worry about that. If they say we want to do something completely different, I just take it on as a challenge and okay, let's, let's figure out how we can do that. Here's what I can offer you. And I think as a DP, if you can get to that point, that's a very comfortable, comfortable place to be. Uh, and I've talked to other DPs who shoot uh, episodic TV and they, they end up saying much the same thing. You know, at some point they can't worry about everything. They just walk into a new location and when someone throws stuff at them, they just say, well, okay. Let's figure it out. Here's what I can do. How much time do we have? Yeah. If you want what you just asked for, that's going to take two hours. Do you want to spend two hours? No. Okay. Here's what I can do for you in the half hour you've allotted for me to, you know, to light this. Yeah. You just be very straightforward and you don't get, you don't, you can't lose your cool. I think that's the biggest thing, but you just have to present options and not take it personally. Mm -hmm. 
And that's it for another episode. Thanks once again to Art for being so generous with his time. You can now join in the conversation about this and all the previous episodes on our new Facebook group. Just search for the Camera Channel Podcast. You can still leave a comment on the website, mjsanders.co.uk slash podcasts, or you can get in touch on Twitter at camera underscore channel. My name is Michael Sanders. Thank you for listening and goodbye.